Welcome back, guys. Thanks for your patience while we took a short break after a very busy summer full of festivals and travel. I'm finally back in Berlin, where I'm happy to bring you the 49th episode of Air, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Before we get started, we're moving a few housekeeping bits to the top of the show. If you fancy following us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at at underscore air podcast or on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. I want to talk just briefly about another podcast I've really been enjoying, which is the Not A Diving podcast hosted by Paul Rose, also known as Scuba. It's been such a joy seeing his show come together over the past several months. His show features not only DJs and producers, but also important industry people like ARs, PRs, and promoters. Scuba has a real knack for creating that natural interview chemistry, and the show really does feel like a conversation between friends, which we love, of course. If you're interested, his most recent episodes have featured Sunil Sharp, Ellen Alien, and DJ Spoonie. You can check that out at scubaofficial.io slash podcast. Another quick note to say that next month will be our 50th episode of the series, Can You Believe? There will be a couple special announcements coming soon as well, and of course a very exciting guest, so I hope to see you at the end of November to celebrate. Thank you so much to all my listeners for your continued support. On to our show this month, joining me today is Canadian producer and live performer Matthew Johnson. Initially from the west coast of Canada and now based in Berlin, Matthew's upbringing in electronic music started in the 90s when he, Daniel Tate, Tiger Dula, and The Mole created Modern Deep Left Quartet, an electronic project born from live performance, improvisation, and jam sessions. Those jam sessions eventually led to the acclaimed band Cobblestone Jazz, featuring Dan, Tiger, and Matthew, celebrated for its forward-thinking take on jazz meets techno. Collaboration and improvisation continued to play key parts in Matthew's music career, extending to inform his creative process, his solo work, and his techniques as a live performer. With this in mind, he created the Freedom Engine Academy, a music school offering intensive courses around electronic music production, music theory, and creativity, taught by a roster of talented musicians and Matthew himself. In this episode, we're discussing collaborative learning and how the group experience can make music better. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's really nice to be here with you. Thanks for having me. I actually want to start off talking uh, a bit about Cobblestone Jazz and the way you guys work together. I read that at one point in the 90s, you had this residency where you would invite different local artists to join you on stage and you'd kind of learn how to play with them and match their styles. Uh, I really love that. Can you tell me a bit about that time in your life? Yeah, that, that was actually an earlier inc- incarnation of Cobblestone Jazz. It was a, a band called the Modern Deep Left Quartet that also had the mole um, included. And yeah, we, we would have new guests every week, uh, which completely changed the style of music that we would be performing. Sometimes it was very challenging. Um, other times it was it was easier. Some of the rehearsals for those shows really were quite in, in depth and very educational in terms of of uh, sometimes playing styles that I'd never even really encountered before. Mm-hmm. So having to learn new new styles of rhythm, um, for example. Uh, we had one one band that was playing um, Zimbabwean music mm-hmm. and uh, and I'd never I'd never really listened to 
too much music from Zimbabwe in the past and and trying to adapt to that, you know, within maybe only two two rehearsals to get up on stage and perform that inside of a club um, was challenging, but super, super, super fun. I was also very young at that time as well. So, so for me, I was really just um, also learning how to perform and, and how to play electronic music with, with uh, others because for the first uh, 10 years of me making electronic music, I, I didn't really know anybody else that was doing that. So without that experience, I, I would be a completely different person as a musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say like, you know, you can sit at a desk learning all you want, but there's nothing really the same as really getting thrown in like that kind of experience that you had, would you say? Very much so. We we actually have gone gone through different chapters in the way that we've performed live. We've we've used computers with bed tracks at times. Um, we've we've had kind of enormous live setups with all kinds of of gear in the beginning years. We we were almost bringing our whole studio down to the to the performances, um, mm-hmm. and then we kind of ended up in the last years just just getting up on stage and actually not having any material written whatsoever. It's kind of like, you know, you, you just have to play and, and you also have to be accepting of the fact that it, it might not always be up to your expectations. Mm. Um, and, and, and ego. Yeah, that's a <laughs> good know. lesson as well. So what, what do you remember specifically about maybe some things that you were taught or that you learned during those really kind of hands-on early experiences? leveling the audio was was a big challenge having having lots of different players and not being a sound engineer was very was very difficult um we were mixing um everything ourselves rather than having a front of house mixer do it for us which is more common in in band settings that was probably the the most difficult thing I, i remember listening back to most of the recordings and just being horrified actually that that what we were doing was was that um there's a there's a common um thing that people do uh when they're when they're starting producers tend to put too many sounds in their in their songs Mm -hmm. and kind of they think they think that more is is better well things can get very very busy and cluttered and muddy I, I had this thing where I was over mixing reverb a lot of the time. So it sounded kind of like there was like this jet engine mm-hmm. constantly underneath all of the, all of the mixes. So, so yeah, the mixing was probably like, that was, that was probably the biggest challenge. Um, also too, like I, I was kind of, I mean, when I was younger, I was going through a lot and, it, and I, and I didn't really feel so comfortable socially either. So you know, I tended to drink a lot in the clubs <laughs> and, uh, and, and almost kind of in a way like venting, venting all of my problems into the speakers. But, but I realized very, very fast that that wasn't enjoyable for people to listen to. Uh-huh. You know? and, and I'm, and I'm glad that I did that. And before the times of Facebook and Instagram, so there's no record of me clearing dance floors and, and just being totally stupid with the music I was playing. But it really, you know, doing doing that and doing it live and having friends that are very forgiving and also older than me was immensely helpful. And, and without without them and having that opportunity to, to perform with people who had more experience than me, yeah, certainly would have got me to come along so so quickly. What made you decide to extend those invitations to other artists, other local artists? Was it just something that you thought you would try out or were you actively seeking to kind of expand your musical horizons? Well, it wasn't my idea, actually. Um, Daniel Tate um, decided that he would form a band. And basically my role in it was to play bass drum uh, snare drum, hi hats, and some bass lines. While he played Fender Rhodes and and vocoder, we had, we had uh, other guys with samplers and and um, turntables, and it was their kind of concept. And they were and they were much more connected through the jazz scene, through the folk music scene um, in the city than I was. Because I think when I started playing with those guys, I think I was only nineteen. Hmm. And so they'd they'd kind of been around the block a little bit longer. And so I, I'll give them the credit for that. I, I was I was kind of just along for the ride at that time and, and just very blessed um, to uh, have been asked to join the, the band with with, uh, with those guys. At the top of your answer, uh, of the first answer, you mentioned that there was a lot of different genres that you were exploring, styles of music that you had never even heard of before. Mm-hmm. And so how did those experiences playing in other styles and other genres 
help you guys as a band to sort of work together? I mean, I'm guessing it was a lot of like knowing how to improvise and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I had only three years of jazz training as a drummer, um, in, uh, in high school. Um, so I did, you know, because I was producing electronic music at that time, I was paying a lot of attention to what the band leader was, was screaming at all of the different, um, people in the group. He was, he was very, very passionate, you could say. Um, but I kind of, uh, tried to listen as much as I could then, then performing live with, um, the guys from Modern Deep Left Quartet and Cobblestone Jazz, I, I certainly kind of took what I had learned in, in school band mm-hmm. and applied it there. Um, then further going into playing with with so many different musicians that were playing so many different styles. I mean, when you're learning how to play different styles, it's so much of it is kind of about where the accents are sitting mm-hmm. in the music and the phrasing, different time signatures, even even just like the way that certain certain beats of the music might sustain longer or, or be more staccato. Uh, so you kind of it's it's almost like a study of grooves. And I certainly don't consider myself you know any kind of master when it comes to that. But Daniel Tate, I would would consider certainly to be. Um, and so ha- having him kind of as like the main uh, melodic content in the group, he kind of led the way in that sense. Mm-hmm. I can imagine it also made it a lot easier, you know, being in this group setting makes it a bit easier to just kind of try things out and go for it because you're not, you know, you have that sort of encouragement and feedback from people, as you mentioned, who are a bit older than you. Yeah, I mean, it, you know what, it actually, like, it also had to do with how forgiving the the crowd and the people who were who we were playing for. Mm-hmm. It, it, we were in an environment in a small town where we knew everybody in the crowd, like, you know, there was probably maybe only... 10% of the people in the clubs that, that I hadn't met in the past. And so, so it, it was very much like the, you know, the Victoria and Vancouver music scenes were, were kind of so close knit at that time that it, it, it all like the, the, just the people, all of the people um, very much had, had to do with how we were playing and how we were interacting. very special time in those years in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where probably you got a lot of your sort of confidence about playing music live. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned how I was, you know, very young and kind of venting, you know, in the early years. One one thing that that I consciously decided, which which basically changed everything, it was like the light bulb went off and I and I kind of just realized I'm like, hey, you know, we're performers, we're here um, in a, in a club where people want to come and have fun and enjoy. And sure, we can, we can push the envelope and we can play different emotions. So you can, you can be angry or aggressive or, you know, whatever that is. But, but at the, at the same time, if you're, if you're doing it in a way that's entertaining versus in a way that's kind of self-absorbed, those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I chose to, to, to have people going home happy at the end of the performances that, that we were, we were playing. And I, and I chose that if I did go into something where I was expressing something that might be a darker emotion that I, that I could um, have that resolve in a way that, that would bring some sign of maybe hope or some kind of happiness or, or lesson learned or whatever, you know, um, in terms of the emotions that I was sharing with people Versus just being like a angry teenager, you know, mm-hmm. just wanting to break everything in the speakers. You know? Was there a lot of trial and error involved in that, or? Um, yeah, there was a lot of trial and error. I cleared a lot of a lot of nights of the of the of the club that we were playing, and I don't know how they had us back because we were literally. I mean, I would literally 
be so aggressive on stage with the music I was playing that my band members would walk off the stage wow. and just be like, we, we can't play with you when you're like that. We can't, there's nothing we, we can do. You're not leaving any room for anybody else. You're just being crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was, but, but at the same time I was young and I didn't know any better. And yeah, I was just <laughs> lucky that, lucky that nobody was saying, okay, yeah, that's that guy. And you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's banned from every club in the world now. We don't want any of that. That's a, a real kind of moment of truth to have with yourself. Like, I think it takes a lot of honesty to be able to have that sort of step back and realization. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, I mean, now that, that was, you know, over, over 20 years ago, but yeah, that, it, that, that moment of change was, was a big, was a big thing for me. And, and everything changed after that. It, people, people were smiling. The clubs would stay packed. Everybody mm-hmm. was happy. We'd, we'd started getting more gigs um, internationally also to it. Like it was just kind of something that we had to learn also as a band um, and also just get through a lot of our own issues. And we did that in a pretty intense way. Like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of friends that may not have survived actually what we put each other through, but I think because we all had quite an immense amount of respect for each other musically, we we chose to to tough it out and uh, and just kind of get through it. And and because because there was moments of absolute magic that were happening on stage, um, and those moments were worth all of the you know the dirt that we had to trudge through to get there. It's been a while since you guys have released anything together, but I know you're still playing quite a few shows together. Has much changed in the way that you work together? You know, since that light bulb moment, has your collaborative nature stayed pretty much the same? We've had different methods that we've used in the studio. And as we've, as we've grown, we've, we've become so, so, um, comfortable with playing with each other, I guess you could say, or, well, we've been comfortable with being so uncomfortable up on stage with not having any material, um, to play when Mm -hmm. we go up there. Um, but that, that's something that, that basically just took going through those times where we had bed tracks and we had everything, you know, we wanted to play records that, that, uh, had attention at the time. And we wanted to, we wanted to showcase different sides of, of the music that we were actually releasing for better or for worse. I mean, I think some people probably when they see us play, they would love us to play some of the like hits, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, which we don't do anymore, partly because we actually have not really any way to, we don't have any computer up on stage. We don't have any samplers or anything like that. So yeah, it's been a real, it's been a real journey. We've tried everything. We've tried programming outboard equipment and going up on stage we've tried rehearsing songs and having plans um we've had bed tracks and yeah i don't think there's too many people that are just walking up on stage with nothing yeah so what can you tell me about that decision like what 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 brought that on i mean i think i think part of it is is the gear we use allows us to to write very quickly I, the synthesizer I use to write bass lines with has the the most simple sequencer out of any any piece of gear that's ever been made, and uh, that's the SH one hundred and one. And it and it, it it essentially allows me to to come up with um, synth lines, bass lines, melodic lines in in seconds. When I hear a bass line or a melody in my head, for me to transcribe that and and program it into the sequencer is uh is almost instantaneous um dan is playing fender Rhodes live mm-hmm. um and and singing on a vocoder so he's he's the most present out of out of the group and then all of our drum machines um we're leaving in write mode so we're just writing the beats on the fly um but because we've had so much experience now uh doing that over the years um you know we can we can think about a beat and just program it Mm-hmm. As we go, we don't we don't really need to sit there and and think too much about what we're doing, just because we just know the gear. We we we've been essentially using the same kind of sequencers and 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 gear for for over twenty years. So mm-hmm. we've just kind of mastered these these few instruments, and um, and we haven't really changed that much. Our live set hasn't really evolved in terms in terms of equipment. So I'm sure you're obviously a bit used to doing that now um, but what can you remember about the first time that you went on stage and you had nothing prepared um what was that like for you oh it was i mean 
it's exactly the same way as it is every time. It's it feels like you're stepping up into a boxing ring. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's there. You know, like we have we have a certain amount of confidence, but at the same time, it's 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 nerve wracking. You know, we get up on stage and I program a kick drum, and that kick drum goes boom, 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 and then I put in some hi hats and some claps and some snares. Dan Dan will start playing something on the keyboards, and I'll listen to what he's doing, and then kind of allow myself to drift out of the idea of conceptualizing what we have to do and go into a creative state where where I allow myself to hear what what should be happening next so it's I guess that's kind of a funny thing to do you know when you're when you're under pressure is to kind of like turn off and like forget about the fact that you're up in front of a couple thousand people you know on, on a stage that are waiting for something um and just kind of just let yourself go. And that's something I guess also too, that I had to train myself how to do. I, it's just like, I kind of just go into this kind of trancey moment for, for a few seconds. And, and usually something, something will come. Sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, mm-hmm. that's, that's terrifying. That's, uh, yeah. that's like, that's like, Oh shit. Like, okay. I'm, I'm not hearing anything. There has to be something okay, what am I going to do? You know, so then maybe I'll switch to like trying to just program some drums or trying to do something else to, uh, to kind of keep the flow of the music going. Yeah. There's, there's, there's certainly, we, we do have good nights and bad nights. Every, every show is different because we don't have a set prepared. So it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy doing that, but, but it's, but it's also super fun. And, and, and what it, what it allows for is, is, is much more magic going on than something you've prepared in the past. Is the risk also, you mentioned that it's just really fun to be up there like that. Um, I can imagine that the risk is also what makes it fun for you guys. But do you think there will come a point where now you've gotten so used to playing like this that you're going to have to do something else in order to like create that risk again? Um, well, I mean, that risk, that risk will always be there because when you have nothing, there has to be something. The tr- musical trends, the people's behaviors, also people's attention spans, you know, are changing ever faster mm-hmm. these days with all our technology. It can be hard to get up in, on a main stage in a festival sometimes and kind of um, ask for, hey, can we have patience of everybody? You know, we're, we're, we're writing this <laughs> on the fly. You know, you, you don't really have that luxury, you know. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess what it comes down to um, is just education and trying to challenge ourselves. Dan, Dan practices for hours every single day. He's also a piano instructor. Yeah. Um, I'm constantly trying to learn, um, new things and, and, and I'm also, I'm, I'm also playing every weekend. I'm just trying to challenge myself and try and do new things when I'm, when I'm performing. And that, and I guess that's kind of what drives us to, to evolve. Um, also musical theory, you know, like that's something that I'm really lacking in, in comparison to Dan. So, so in terms of me being able to just follow him, can be very difficult just because he's able to you know change chords and keys uh very 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 easily and quickly even even hear those things and just and just move whereas for me for me i'm kind of doing things by ear so it's that's one thing i'm you know kind of trying to push myself for more and more is to just be a better musician just understand music better yeah i was gonna say it sounds like that is maybe where you see your see the most growth as an artist, um, especially when you're you know you've been in this industry for so long. I can imagine that it can get to a point where you feel maybe a bit like you're stagnating or you're not sort of uh, trying new things enough. Um, and I guess that's that's a really good way of kind of keeping that evolution or keeping on pushing your own limits. Absolutely. I mean, there is this kind of like common denominator that that so many of um, my friends would use when we were jamming in the studio and we still do it sometimes if we're playing, if we're playing with people that really, really don't have any kind of um, uh, musical training and that's by playing pentatonic scales, you know, just like playing black notes, just be like, okay, just play black notes. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can listen to a lot of my music from the early days, especially stuff that was made with, with friends. We're literally just playing G flat pentatonic major. And, uh, that, yeah, of course, you know, that, that changes. I, I, I started, I kind of took a break from, from piano study. I was, I was taking classical piano as a child and I got back into that with, with trying to write my own piano music and, and evolve that, th- those compositions as a, as just a way of practicing and as a way of, um, 
improving. So as I do that now, um, I'm able to play live, you know, live keys sometimes with Dan. Sometimes I'll just I'll just be playing the bass lines with my hands, which is a which is something very new to me on stage since since for years I wasn't really confident and able to do that. So things are things are always changing. You once talked about how the music that you make together with friends is something that you could never even imagine making on your own. Um, there's an interview that you did with Deep House Amsterdam several years ago, where you talked about this really big 24-hour studio session that you had, I guess this was in 2016, oh, with yeah. Chris Reno and Colin Moore and Scott Monteith Deadbeat. Um, and that session birthed the first Units and Measurements album. Uh, at the time, you said it was like a really big highlight for you, you know, your biggest achievement of the year. Can you speak about that experience and what made it so special? Yeah, I mean, I mean that was uh, that was a very unique unique experience. Um, also, also just in terms of um, on the psychedelic sides of things, <laughs> um, but uh, that really pushed the envelope. Um, there's a certain amount of kind of presence that that we were feeling in that in those moments. We were just so involved in in every sound and in every and all of the music that was being played. It happens a lot with with uh, with people who are open minded, you know, and, and people who are not necessarily stuck on releasing records. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you go into a studio with someone and there's a purpose, or if or as a maybe as a producer, you know, you've I, I don't um, I don't do much production for other people myself, but but if you're hired as a as a producer, you know, there's a goal. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to release this record. This is going to go on my album. We need it to be this kind of genre or, or fit, you know, number four song or whatever it is. When you kind of let go of all of those things, that's that's when that's when things can really happen, I guess. Um, I, I have a lot of recordings that are really terrible, actually. I have to say that that are kind of open jam sessions like that. Um, there'll always be one guy who doesn't know how to play the piano, <laughs> playing the piano or playing the synthesizer. No, that also could be me. It kind of makes a lot of recordings just like unusable. Um, but yeah, cer- certainly. Um, you know, when you have experimental projects like that, it, there's no constraints. Yeah, you know, there's no, there's no, that there, there, there wasn't anything even about the dance floor um, mm. in that setting. You know, we were we were just just making music. Mm-hmm. I can imagine there's also a lot of like I don't know. I'm I'm sure there were points where there were you were just like well and truly buzzing off what you were doing, like really sort of high moments. Um, do you think that that comes from like? This really long friendship. I know you guys. You guys have known each other for a really long time. Um, does it take that kind of deep, long-term connection to be able to improvise in that way, where you're really um, feeding off each other, really kind of growing together as one sound? Yeah, there, there, there definitely needs to be a certain amount of trust. I have a really hard time, actually. Um, actually, no, that's you know what, that's not true. I'm going to rephrase that. I used to have a really hard time. Working with with uh, people in the studio, I, I tried so many times when I when I was younger to go in and write music with people I didn't know so well in it, and it was always very challenging and very difficult. Maybe because I was more difficult, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe I was more socially uncomfortable back then. But yeah, when you're when you're with your closest friends, and and you put yourself in a situation like that, then then yeah, it's certainly it's certainly different. With with people you don't know, it's it's kind of you know you're there's a certain amount of 
I mean, I'm not sure if it's like that for everybody, but, but for me, I, I start thinking about like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, does this person think that I'm a total freak for playing <laughs> this baseline or is this, you know, is this going to annoy them or maybe they don't want to do it. Like I, I kind of become overly concerned about just being like a good host if I'm in the studio with someone or something like that. And so those, all those types of things are blocks. And so when you can kind of let go in a situation where there's no blocks, then yeah, that's, that's when the, the door opens. Mm-hmm. Everything that we've talked about so far is also extending to your solo work, I think. Um, I know that your in-studio process and your live performance process are pretty similar just in terms of like drawing on inspiration and uh, kind of having an open mind about these things. Does all of this sort of work together in your musical world? Yeah, I mean, the way I perform live, I'm mixing on a 32-channel desk and everything is in right mode and and. And I'm performing using a computer when I'm when I'm playing solo, and I have bed tracks and and kind of parts that I can mix and match and improvise on top of, um, and that's pretty much how I also mix in the studio. So so the two things they do go hand in hand because when I'm when I when I record my tracks in the studio, I'm also just recording out of the master output to a st- to a stereo track. Mm-hmm. Um, I might do a little bit of multi tracking um, for certain parts. And certainly when I'm doing a remix, you know, where I have a lot of uh, parts from another person that I have to kind of organize and uh, put into place, um, there becomes a lot more arrangement going on. But but everything is still being mixed on the desk, summed on the desk, uh, dubbed on the de- desk in terms of effects. Um, and so I'll do, you know, multiple mixes before I get, get something that maybe feels right. But that process is exactly the same way as, as I'm presenting my tracks when I'm on stage. And so how long did it take you to figure out the artistic or creative process that works for you? There was a, there was a time where I started performing and that, and that certainly changed things. There was uh, these guys uh, that I met um, in, in Victoria. Uh, one of the guys' names, well, a lot of people knew him as Techno Tom. And then there's, and then there's this friend of his, his name is Peter, um, a guy from, he was, he was from Poland, but he was living, living in uh, Vancouver for some time. Um, and these guys, these guys kind of showed me like one, one method, I guess you could say, like in terms of how to set up the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just like having the kick drum on the first channel and then having the next, the, the drums separated and then have the synths and then have the effects. And I still do the same thing. It just, it's just kind of logical. And, and then also too, like, like just the, the idea of, of playing techno and not having really patterns written on the drum machines and doing that live. That's, that's another thing that I got from, from those guys. So it's just kind of, it's just kind of stayed with me. You know, it's, it's, it's something, it's something that made sense in the beginning and and over time it's it's just become more and more comfortable in a previous interview you talked about how you actually struggle more to make music on your own because you start to kind of think about it too much and then you end up needing to take breaks to distract yourself maybe with like cleaning or reading or doing something else for a little bit and that actually working with other people helps to keep you kind of on track and it ends up feeling a bit more natural yeah it's 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 nice to be able to bounce off off other people to 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 have to have the music be more of a conversation rather than than uh, just a solo dialogue is, is much more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's there's certainly challenges on on both sides. I think I think perhaps I also have like a bit of a attention deficit disorder when I'm on my own, um, which I think now is going to really change now that I have a little baby girl, <laughs> because now my time in the studio is going to be quite limited, and I'll also be paying for childcare when I go to the studio. So there, there won't be. <laughs> There won't be any, um, you know, long naps or like reading books or whatever like that, that to uh, get myself <laughs> inspired or whatever. Um, but at the same at the same time, I, I actually uh, even even before she was born, I, I started actually feeling um, so incredibly inspired just because of uh, of knowing that that she was coming and 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 kind of. Yeah, it just it just kind of I don't know, it, it, it's she's made me a lot more present. Mm. I, I don't think I've ever, ever felt so present inside of reality other than the last few weeks. Um, and so I think this is actually going to really change, change the game, the game in, ter- in terms of my, of how I work in the studio. Uh, but back, but back to the, the working with other people. Yeah. I mean, I could, I guess I could talk a little bit about 
about how cobblestone works in the studio. Um, one, one, one thing that we used to do is we would kind of, we would, we would jam, um, but, but we, we would kind of jam with the idea that, that it was allowed to sound like, like absolute garbage. <laughs> and, and we, it, it, you know, it would, it would just be like, okay, like this is, this is a moment, this is a moment now where, where we're all just going to just do anything and with no regards for how it sounds whatsoever, um, as a way of being so free that we could kind of pick little bits and pieces out of all of that chaos. Um, and, uh, and that, and, and in doing, in doing so, that was a way that we would kind of find things. We've also had, had the total opposite where, where we're much more organized and we, we go one by one making a part. So I might write a, a simple drum beat and then Dan will play a simple melody and then, and then Patty will play um, some more drums or put in a sample, you know, um, or call, or Colin, Colin might do something on a synthesizer. Um, and we just go around and around and around and, and actually just one at a time and really try and give, give each other uh, the time and the space. Um, you know, sometimes one of us might even say, Hey, can you guys go outside and have a smoke and come back in 15 minutes? I need to work on this baseline, you know? And I can't do it when I'm listening to you guys all joking around and laughing or whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, get out and give me a sec. So we've had, we've had like different, different methods and, and it really just depends on the mood. I'm not sure which one is, is better. That's kind of when we need to be work driven, I guess, you know, maybe we have limited amount of time. Um, we live in different cities now, so there is a certain kind of pressure on us to, to do things um, when we lived in the same city that was a bit more relaxed and i think i think there's something certainly to be said about guys that just hang out almost every day in the studio together yeah sometimes you know when there isn't any kind of time constraints or pressure or anything and you just start noodling around with no intention whatsoever that's when some sometimes some of the best melodies um, might emerge talked about how you always hope to be on some kind of a learning journey you mentioned you know this jam session experience um and then i know that at the beginning when you were first starting out producing you had more of a kind of copycat approach that i think a lot of young producers do um so what what other kind of stages can you talk about in terms of um your learning curve or your learning process well the biggest learning curve now is actually the freedom engine academy that i've started i was teaching with the red bull music academy for many years the last incarnation of that was in 2018, and that left a bit of a hole for me because every every year I was almost every year I was going and spending a couple of weeks um, with uh, people from all around the world and and working in the studios with them, uh, being part of uh, workshops and interviews, um, and it was actually really one of the highlights out of the year for me where I really felt like I was learning something because because even though I was there. As a mentor, um, the reason actually why I kept on going back is because I was actually just learning so much, just being involved in the in the entire group and the and and just the whole feeling of what was going on. Um, when I started the Freedom Engine Academy, it was kind of based on what I'd learned from working in the Red Bull Music Academy, and and so I so I took that and I thought about what I what I wanted to do. At first, I was thinking I would I would be a solo mentor and I would just kind of 
do online classes and, and, and teach people about the way that I write music, you know, or, or, or the way I do a remix or, or play live. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I realized actually um, is that I wanted to offer a lot more than, than just what my personal experience is. And also too, I, I realized that, I'm not really qualified to be teaching um, engineering, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not qualified to be teaching music theory. And those things are really important for me. And if I hadn't had some of those things on a very basic level um, as a child, also growing up with a father who plays, you know, many different instruments, um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't kind of have, have the feeling of, of uh, enjoyment that I do in the studio. So, so that's why I, I decided that instead of just doing, starting a mentorship program, I would actually start a school. And so now we have eight instructors that all specialize in, in different areas, vocals, uh, even music business now, um, classical piano, jazz, music history, engineering, and then also digital audio workstations. That's actually probably been the biggest like game changer for me ever now is because because now I have professionals that are really at the top of their game teaching mm-hmm. and and I get to experience this every year um, and moderate these classes, which is which is for me probably the biggest gift because because I'm the one that gets to kind of choose the direction of where I, I want to learn and what I want to know. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just completely changed my whole outlook on on music. I'm going to come back to teaching in a second, but I want to talk a bit more about what you mentioned about being a solo mentor and I guess sort of my thinking about being a solo learner. Like for a long time when I was growing up, I was really a solo learner because I was just like too embarrassed to, I don't know, work with anybody or ask questions. And I didn't, I was like too scared to feel stupid, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think I realized pretty quickly that working with others and kind of seeking expertise from people who are smarter than you is actually the best way to grow. I think what's what's interesting about underground electronic music is that what makes it good, um, and good. I mean, I don't really believe in good and bad music necessarily, but but what makes it, you know, enjoyable or interesting um, or inspiring um, for people is so individual, um, and so kind of having a general music training is very different than working in a group of underground artists. Hmm. Um, and also too, like, you know, you might have um, people like who I hired in the Academy who are, you know, piano instructors or they are recording engineers. But in terms of, um, in terms of like how people put that together um, is all, is all so different. I, I think, I think when you're, when you have people that that have the knowledge and are are able to answer technical questions it uh, it also kind of comes down to the what are the demands of the students you know and and to be in a group i mean it's also important that you have the right group because if you have if you have people in a group that makes other people uncomfortable for example you know and that does happen but but if you're in a comfortable group of people that are all learning this is this this can really like uh, it 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 has a completely different dynamic of, of being in a school where it's like you have to take a certain amount of electives and you have to take this and this and this. And, you, and you know, for, for me, um, when I, I used to be a lifeguard and I stopped, I stopped lifeguarding after, after a major accident that we had in the pool and they wanted, they gave me vocational training and they said, what can I, what can, what can I go to school for? And I was like, well, the only thing I have any experience in is, is music. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to put you in a music school. So I went to this music school and it, and it completely sucked like, the entire creative energy out of me um, because I was learning math. I was, you know, like studio being, becoming a studio engineer is like heavy, heavy math. Mm-hmm. And I was, and, and I had this, you know, teacher who was just so incredibly kind of boring to listen to. And just, it just, it, it just wasn't doing anything for me. So I, I quit after six months. It was just like a complete waste of time because I, I did ask a lot of questions, of course, you know, about, everything I wanted to learn from the school, but I certainly wasn't going to be in that, in that place for three years and, and continue in it. And it's, and it's because of that kind of more general look like, like the, the way that I'm learning now and, and, and also the way the Red Bull Music Academy was set up, it's, it's, it, it felt, it felt very, very, 
different. It was kind of like almost everybody brings an equal point to the to the playing field. You know, every, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or or advanced. Everything is valid, and mm-hmm. and sometimes people who are less experienced are the ones that break people out of their boxes. You know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of in terms of breaking rules or just thinking differently. Yeah. So these kind of group dynamics are, are very, very special. I, I feel so lucky in terms of the, the people that I'm working with in the Freedom Engine Academy, because we really, we really do have people from all around the world and who are playing all different styles of music as well too. So, mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it becomes a very, a very uh, inspiring and, and kind of open-minded way of looking at making making songs earlier you mentioned that you realized that you didn't have what it took to be a engineering teacher yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) but so how did you know that you had what it took to to teach the things that you are teaching uh at freedom engine academy like for example i've been asked to teach some journalism courses before and aside from just hating public speaking i also feel like I actually just don't know enough to pass on any real wisdom, even though I've been in this career for over a decade. So is that something that you grappled with? Like, what are, what are my actual qualifications or like, what, what can I actually offer people? Is that something that you struggled with? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so that, and, and because we're kind of a boutique school in that sense, um, what I'm, what I'm teaching or talking about is actually just how, how I do things. I'm not, I'm not really, telling anybody like, okay, this is, this is the correct way of using a compressor, you know, or this is the correct way of using a drum machine. It's just, Hey, this is how I've been using a drum machine for so so long. This is how I use synthesizers. This is, this is how I set up my own live set, you know, and, and it's not, um, the right way, you know, but, but it is one way. And then I, and then, and then I can talk about, okay, so that's how I do it solo. Okay. This is how I do it with cobblestone jazz. Oh, this is how I do it with midnight operator. This is how I do it with, you know, other, other people that I work with vocalists or, um, you know, saxophone players or whatever it may be. Um, so it's really just kind of passing on experience mm-hmm. is, is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not a trained music instructor. I don't even really necessarily know how to break things down in terms of, you know, teaching the basis of synthesis or whatever that may be. Um, However, with having so many years experience um, in what I do have, it's, it's, uh, that, that's kind of what I'm bringing to the table. Um, and then the people who are instructors, like the piano instructors, they're, they're giving like proper lessons because they're, they're trained. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just showing people what I'm doing and I'm, and I'm, I'm just trying to be as open as I can. I, I, I believe, I believe in, um, in sharing everything. Um, also, uh, also as a way of myself learning, so I don't really keep any secrets from people when it when it comes to my production techniques or anything. Mm. If people copy me, then that's wonderful. I take it as a compliment. But really, what I'm trying to do is I'm is I'm trying to just be really, really open so that everybody can kind of find their own voice. Something you mentioned in another interview is that you're not only teaching the technical side of things, but you're also looking at music from a more maybe philosophical or spiritual side, also just like learning new ways to think about and interact with music, how to find inspiration, how to find intention, things like that. Um, I think that kind of thing is also really important, especially with how much more widespread electronic music is becoming. I think there's a lot of young producers who don't really know why they want to make music. So can you talk a bit about how you're approaching that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something, it's something that I kind of fight with a little bit in the, in the longer you're in the music industry, sometimes it can be difficult to, to not get a little bit, you know, bitter about uh, the intentions behind what people are doing and why they're making certain kinds of music. You know, you, you see a lot of um, producers just chasing trends and producing music so that certain famous DJs might play it or have them get, or have them book them at their parties you know, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's very dishonest in terms of, in terms of actually being, you know, being a musician. I think there is a side of things that, uh, we, we all may fight with in, inside of ourselves. You know, it's like being a, being a musician that where you start doing that as a professional job and it's not a hobby anymore. It's something that a lot of us struggle with in terms of, uh, you know, not, not letting our music turn into something that's, that's being, created 
for money, you know, and, and what is it exactly that we're trying to share with people and, mm-hmm. and staying grounded in, and trying to be aware of, of where you're at, you know, um, I think, I think also, also depending on people's situations and, and also to like uh, levels of fame, um, the tiredness, the burnouts, all those kind of things can set in and, and people, people can lose, um, maybe intentions that they may have started out with, um, and start making music for reasons that, you know, I, I might say as, as being more dark, you know, or greedy than kind of just the purity of, of just making music for, for the music and, and not really attaching yourself to it as much. I know something that we do in the studio that's, that I find really important because things get really heated sometimes in the studio when I'm working with, with the people that I do. And we, get, we can get into some pretty intense arguments about stuff. But, but the thing is, is that, is that all we're arguing about, it's not personal. What we're arguing about is, is, is bringing life to the music that we're playing. And what is this song asking for? What's the potential of this piece? What, what can this do? What is, what, what is the result of this song? What, what's the effect that it's going to have on people? You know, and, and what is that? What, what is it that we want to actually be sharing? And, and so those types of questions, you know, when you're working with a group can sometimes be complicated because sometimes people have different intentions. And when you, when you start kind of getting deep on that kind of stuff, and also if you really be very honest um, in your music, sometimes that honesty can really push people's buttons. And, and I can't remember who said it. There's one musician that uh, that it's a it's a quote and it's basically it was basically saying that that music writing music shouldn't be a democracy it's a dictatorship and art and art you know art art should be a dictatorship it's not mm-hmm. this is not a democracy we're we're not making mediocre music we're not making music that makes everybody happy or agreeable we're, we're we have a strong vision and that vision is is in in, in its purity is going to be the most powerful thing and so. That can be challenging, you know, when when you're when you're working with people. But but that's also kind of I think what what can bring the best music at times as well is that you know if you're playing music to a group of people in a club, let's say, and let's say sixty percent of those people are crying in happiness, twenty uh, percent of the people think you're crazy, and and the, and the rest of them think that you're a total asshole. This is success, you know. This is really success. If you if you can if you if you have people having strong opinions about what you're doing, and be it love or hate, that's 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 good music. That's good art. So I like I like this kind of like really free um, idea when it when it comes to creating. Um, you talked a bit about group dynamics for you. Uh, so what have you noticed about group dynamics or how a group setting at Freedom Engine Academy? pushes people to be better learners or better artists? Well, it's quite interactive. Uh, we have um, one exercise, it's called one beat per day that we do. And it's basically just that you're, you're asked if you have the time to, to do two parts of a beat. So that could be some basic drums and a bass line. Okay, you're done. And that's it. Um, and, and we try and do that every day. And then after that, what people start doing is they start posting that in our Discord community that we have. And then everybody starts talking about things and, you know, you get compliments or you get asked how you did that. People even start remixing each other's work or start collaborating. Hey, I've got an idea for that. Should we work on this together? You know, that's something that's really special, I think. And, And it's something that it seems like people take away from our course, maybe more than anything else. There's, there's two participants from the last, uh, last winter um, semester that we did that have now done 100 beat, beats per day. Hmm. Um, and, and a lot of those will be, end up being released as tracks. Um, like the point of that is, is that you don't have these expectations of, oh, we have to write a track. It has to be good. It has hmm. to be releasable. Um, no, all, all you have to do is just write a couple parts and it can be any style or any genre. And when you do that every day and you kind of like let, it's, it's a way of let, letting go 
of having these kind of expectations that things always have to be for some kind of end game and, and purpose or whatever. A lot of schools kind of say, hey, okay, by the end of our course, you're going to have five finished songs and mm. and you're going to walk away with with a you know a hit record or whatever. It's like I couldn't get, I couldn't give a shit about that. To be honest, <laughs> it's like I just want people to experiment and um, and actually take time to learn. So many people these days have so many expectations about like, okay, like I, I just bought this new synthesizer and now I'm going to write a track because I want to get on a record label because I'm a DJ and I want to, and I want to finish the track so that I can have a record out and then that way I'm going to get gigs, you know, and mm. that, that kind of way of thinking, it's like, it doesn't really like lend to being open with yourself or having, or just letting yourself just experiment and be creative. So earlier you mentioned, um, we were talking about just the different reasons that people have for wanting to make electronic music. And I wonder if you think that teaching others has shone some light or, or different light on your own reasons for being in music. Like has, has this experience running a music school, has that changed what reasons you have for wanting to be involved in music? Working with the Red Bull Music Academy, I think was probably the, the beginning in terms of really finding broad inspiration from, from, just so many people from around the world. That was, that was probably the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what we've taken into the freedom engine Academy is, is kind of like a miniature version of that. But yeah, certainly it's, uh, it's completely changed my perspective um, on music. I don't really know why I didn't um, do more research or, or look into, you know, things earlier. Like I, I, I think, I, I think I kind of got lost in partying and touring for many years. Um, and, and it's just kind of been maybe the last, yeah, maybe five years. I, I started buying recording engineering books and I started really kind of trying to educate myself and, and, and also kind of just realizing that, that being, um, I guess kind of a bit of a purist when it comes to working with outboard equipment, that I was maybe getting, or not maybe, I was certainly getting behind in the game, techno, um, technologically speaking, in terms of all what's possible in the digital world. Mm-hmm. Um, watching uh, Beatrice Artola mix um, completely changed everything to the point that uh, that I was even thinking about like selling half my studio and getting like all new equipment, mm-hmm. um, just because she's she's. Yeah, I mean, she's at the top of her game. She's she's winning Grammy awards and and mixing mixing some of the most popular music that's been released in the last years. Um, and and so it just it just kind of gave me. I, I mean, it also gave, it kind of gave me a bit of a new confidence as well too, because when you see someone else do something, it's a lot different than reading a book. Mm-hmm. And so and so you know things like 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 oh wow you know she's really putting a lot of compression on those vocals. You know, it's like, I didn't know that that was even possible to do, to do that kind of compression, you know, Mm -hmm. or, um, or, Oh, like, okay. Like, like adding enormous amounts of distortion to things to make things dirty, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like there's just so many techniques that, that, uh, that she uses when she's mixing that I just never seen anybody do before. And a lot of those things are, are in the, digital realm um a lot of spatial spatial things just kind of like you know these types of production things that in the analog world that can be quite difficult to achieve or very time consuming to achieve um these days you know you can you can just load up a plug-in and and have some really amazing um kind of stereo effects for example on all kinds of kind of very clinical control of things that you, that are just really not possible um, in the outboard uh, outboard world. Mm-hmm. Um, since I started this three years ago, it's just there's it's night and day in terms of in terms of the way I think about uh, production and music. Also, too, like basically being back in piano lessons again and and having um, Sarkis and Daniel um, teaching the way that they do. It's also just it's also just bringing my um, piano level to such a such a higher place as well. The nice thing about about learning is that is that if you are someone that's making music from the heart and you're making music intuitively, if you do have a lot of education under your belt and you're allowing yourself not to be constrained by that, what just comes out of you naturally is is uh, so much more than if you were not educating yourself.
you know, you've, you've just got those tools to play with. So it's, it's yeah, it's just an ever growing journey. been listening to matthew johnson for air podcast episode 49 we'll be back on the last wednesday of the month with another episode and we are really looking forward to celebrating 50 episodes next month in the meantime you can follow us on instagram at at underscore air podcast or on patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast thanks for listening